But now we'll get into the the final topic of today's episode, and it's I want to talk about the power of industry, right? Because when we look at Ukraine, we see an industrial war, right? And and what prompted me to to even cover this is I, I saw a report saying that China's industrial output grew six point six percent in November year on year, and considering how big china's industry is 6.6 percent growth uh well uh yeah 6.6 percent growth in their industry is a huge deal it's a very huge deal they're the workshop of the world and it just got me thinking about all these predictions of the collapse of china's economy and similar predictions being made about Russia's economy. Oh, they're, they're on the verge of collapse. Oh, it's going to collapse. Oh, they're any minute now, evergreen. Oh, the real estate sector in China is it's going to collapse. And the whole, the whole, the, the house of cards is going to come tumbling down and China's going to be wiped off the face of the map. And there's going to be poor, broken, insolvent, which quite honestly sounds more like what's likely to happen in the United States. Uh, our real estate is uh, crashing down. We we've had multiple bank failures. <laughs> um, we are on track for Great Depression 2.0. And granted, we might drag the Chinese down with us, but the Chinese, on their own merits, aren't about to have an economic collapse. Like I'm sorry, that's just not in the car. And it, it's more than just me outgrowing. The whole oh we're gonna be we're gonna be afraid of China because China's the the real enemy China's the real threat I, I've sort of outgrown that in my political evolution and you guys know that by now I don't fear China what, what reason do I have to do that I fear stupid people in my country specifically in my government doing stupid things towards China that gets us into a war with them that's what I fear. But when looking at China's industry and seeing how the strength of their industrial sector has completely offset a a, a, a reeling retail uh, slash commercial real estate sector. Like, because don't get me wrong, China's real estate sector is uh, in a really bad shape. Anyone who's honest is going to tell you that. But the thing is that China's industrial sector, because China's economy isn't a, a, a fire economy, uh, not a finance, insurance, real estate. That's not the basis of China's economy. They have what I like to say, a flame economy. A flame economy. Ooh. Or, well, yeah, yeah. Free, freelance labor, agriculture, manufacturing, energy. If I have to break it down, because this is actually something that I would advocate for the United States having. Uh, but in advocating for it, I realized, oh, wait, the, the Chinese have, have built this for themselves as well. And, well, they, they've really just copied what, and pasted what we did over the course of the 1800s and applied it to themselves to similar results. They have the flame economy, not the fire economy. They have freelance, they have labor, labor, they have agriculture. China's still a big agricultural producer, not the biggest, you know, and certainly not an, an exporter of much uh, other than, say, rice. But they, then again, they have a billion and a half people. So, you, you know, you can 
you can excuse them on that, but they have a really, really powerful manufacturing sector and they have an, a large energy sector. It's just that their and their industry is so in large because industry itself is an energy intensive thing, but they have so much of it that they just consume a lot of energy and they, even with all the coal power plants that they have and with all and the, the coal mining job that they have to try to power the industry, they still need imports of cheap Russian natural gas and oil to sort of make the difference, uh, not just Russian natural gas, but Australian coal as well. And that makes them a powerhouse. It's the manufacturing sector that makes you a powerhouse because from manufacturing everything else orbits, right? Well, if you have a manufacturing, well, that helps the energy sector, that helps the agricultural sector, that helps that helps the real estate sector, because people are going to build cities and towns around where the factories are, right? People are going to produce food to supply the people who are working in the factories. People are going to be mining coal, not just for the sake of mining coal and exporting it, but they're mining coal and drilling for oil to the extent that China has oil. They're mining coal, they're drilling oil, they're extracting energy resources to power the industry. And as a result, you end up with these incredibly large numbers of uh, production, which get put to work in the factories more than anything else. China exports a little bit of what, they're, of what they have in surplus, but a lot of it gets consumed in China because Chinese industry consumes these raw materials, these raw goods, these energy uh, resources, and turns that into everything that the world needs, which makes them an even bigger economic power, because now they're not just consumers of the resource, but they are producers. <clears throat> That's the power of industry. And with industry, especially with how big China's industrial sector is, even when an entire sector of their economy is faltering, they're the real estate sector, which is a big deal for a country of a billion and a half people. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, a floundering real estate sector isn't drag, it's a drag on the economy, but it's not dragging the entire economy down into a recession like what we had in 2008. And like what we're going to have in about 2024, 2025. They're not having that. Not because uh, th there's not a real financial slash real estate crisis going on right now in China, but because the strength of their economy is centered on manufacturing, not real estate, not collecting rent off of people. It's on producing, production. That's the center of Chinese economy. And so long as they're producing things, so long as there's demand for the things that they produce, their economy can with withstand really big blows like this because again this is a really big blow to their economy their real estate sector is sort of uh imploding on itself for the time being in, in certain parts of the economy like I'm not, I'm not gonna pretend like oh all the chinese are gonna be homeless tomorrow you know all these alarmists who want you to fear china all day and night but then it's like okay well china's gonna collapse any second now but it's uh, okay well, when you decide which story you're going to go with, then you can get back to me. But the strength of their manufacturing is so strong that they can have a, a, a mini recession within their within their economy, and it doesn't. They can still have economic growth. They can still have growth in their industrial output because the the industry is what drives the economy, not rent.
and this is a major difference. And this is something that uh, doesn't get discussed enough when people speculate on a war between the United States and China, uh, particularly over Taiwan, the industrial capabilities of the country in which you're fighting this war with. But it also got me thinking about Russia as well, because China's not the only country with industry. We know that. But we've been talking a lot when we talk about Ukraine about the success of Russia's reindustrialization. And thinking about industry and thinking about what it's done, not just for China, but for Russia. Russia had a, a sort of civilizational collapse in 1991 when the Soviet Union dissolved. And all these internal boundaries in the Soviet Union became national borders, which has been a, a pain and a bane of Russia's existence um, from a, a, a mindset point of view. Not, not that Russia couldn't have coexisted with all their new neighbors, which they were literally living with two seconds ago in the same country, but more so it, it weighs on them because a lot of Russians were now homeless because Russia was no longer the country that they were living in just overnight oh you're in ukraine now you're you're in georgia you're in kazakhstan now i said well okay well some of us can leave and go to russia others can't and that's the reason putin called it the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century uh which from a russian perspective uh it would be or at least one of them anyway russia had a really bad time in the 20th century but from that civilization level collapse where they lost uh, russia lost a third of its territory with the collapse of the soviet union and yet here they are having uh, 30 32 years later having reindustrialized to such a degree that they are out producing all of nato combined in every aspect of military production well, we talked about Ukraine earlier on in the, in the episode and how Ukraine just doesn't have anything left to fight with. Well, they're, they're running out and it's it gets worse by the second. And I, I saw one, I was listening to the Duran and they were talking about this one particular report, uh, which isn't reflective of the entire line, but is a, a, a peculiar incident where a, an artillery commander was complaining because he, he was firing his brigade was firing a thousand rounds a day but at one point in the war and now they were firing five a day five artillery rounds a day because you're rationing now again that's not going to be reflective of the entire line yet but that's a really bad sign especially considering that that guy if the duran bothered to bring him up is that guy was likely in a combat zone not just oh it's a, a quiet part of the front line we're only going to fire five shells today the russians will fire eight back you know just to let just to uh, let us know that they have more you know it, it's not an all quiet on the western front type situation they're getting hit with hundreds of russian shells a day if not thousands and you're putting up five which is a, a real warning to for the ukrainians because they don't have the production to keep up with the shells Europe doesn't almost doesn't have shell production like there's talk of Europe expanding its uh, production of uh, of uh, weapons and our uh, ammunition and the result of this because their industry has is so lacking in the capacity for this expansion 
that the price of a shell has gone up to about $8,000 a shell. So you've made the ammunition more expensive without actually producing more ammunition. It's, it's, uh, and, and not like they were producing much to begin with the Europeans, like 4,000 a month. And we in the United States are, we're doing a little better, we're doing a little better, but we have to a lesser degree, the same problem. We don't have the capacity to expand production of shells or really anything else. We're, we're just, the industry just isn't there, not without a mobilization. And that's what happens when you deindustrialize. But the Russians, <clears throat> excuse me, the Russians have reindustrialized and rebuilt their industry to such an extent that they can afford to fire 20,000 shells a day. Because that's the, the low end estimate for what they're able to fire, right? They're, they're consistently firing around 20,000 shells a day. They can bump that up to 40,000, uh, anywhere from 40,000 to 60,000 if they want to. But 20,000 shells a day is the sort of the, the floor for how many shells they're firing. 20,000 a day. And the fact that they haven't run out of ammunition right now, because you can have really, really big stockpiles, but if we, if we just take a moment to do the math here, we, we look at, at uh, 20,000, if we multiply that by 365, just one year, you'd need over 7 million shells for one year of combat where you're firing 20,000 a day and we you can just and you can say oh some days they wouldn't be firing 20,000 okay well we'll just stretch that out divide that by divide it by 2 all right you're still looking at uh 7 million shells over 2 years you would need 7 million shells spread out over 2 years to keep that going now, do I believe Russia would have those types of stockpiles? Yes, I do. But <laughs> but I don't think that they would they would run up the bill until the moment they ran out of shells. I think that they would keep the amount that they were firing at a rate roughly parallel to what they could what they knew they could get up to with production. Ugh. I think that they would keep the rate of fire something close somewhat close to what they knew they could produce, right? So they wouldn't be firing 20,000 if they didn't believe that they could start producing 20,000 rounds a day uh, with you know a little bit of time for their industry to catch up to the demand. I don't think they would be doing that. Meaning that the Russians are producing at least 20,000 shells a day. At least, because that, that, that's the floor, right? Because they, could be, they could, could be producing a lot more, and let's not even... Uh, well, actually, let, no, let's do, let's do think about how the Russian military has been expanding in the background uh, for the, the, all of 2023. That's sort of been going on in the backdrop when talking about the great Ukrainian counteroffensive and how Ukraine's going to change the tide of the war. All the while, the Russians have been uh, undergoing not one, but two mobilizations. What They went through one in October, called up those reservists. They got... Uh, all 300,000 reservists, and they got almost 100,000 volunteers. Then in December, they called up more men. And if we assume that all the men who've joined the Russian military, because Putin just gave uh, another set of numbers saying that about 440,000 men joined Russia's armed services in 2023. If we assume that those are a part of 
that remilitarization mobilization wave back in, in December of 2022, where they called for half a million men. If we assume that these 440,000 men are a part of that mobilization and not additions to that mobilization, well, that would mean that Russia has almost met its goal for the December mobilization wave. In uh, It took about a year, but they've almost met that goal. And they're already sitting on a, a million-man army from the 300,000 men that got ex- um, called up from the reserves back in October. Well, the 400,000, because they got volunteers as well. So they're, they're, they're already sitting on a, a more-than-million-man army. And they have another half a million in volunteers. That's big. That's very big, because remember, they started with 750,000. And it's possible, it's entirely possible that as this goes on, they'll just continue to accept more volunteers beyond their goals of expanding the Russian military by half a million men as a standing army now. This is big. This is big because when you think about that expansion of the Russian military, that expansion needs to be armed and equipped and you need to if you're going to train with the equipment properly you have to be able to fire the gun fire the artillery fire the the tank rounds which means you need to produce these things while you're at war russia's production is such that they can afford to do all of that without crashing their economy they don't have the same issues the cost of a shell in Russia is probably going down because they're expanding production. They're expanding capacity. And by doing that, they've outproduced all of NATO. Now they can sit there and just throw shells at the Ukrainians. Like The, the big thing about this war, and uh, it's sort of stuck with me since uh, I came across Scott Ritter back in the summer of 2022, is when he said that the Ukrainians never saw a Russian. Whether they would get into these firefights, these artillery duels, people would die, they'd have to fall back and retreat. They never saw a Russian. Now, that's obviously not going to be true across the entire line. There is close quarters combats in certain parts of the line. But for a lot of the line, the front line, it is true. Where the Ukrainians don't see Russians, they see evidence of Russians. They see the uh, artillery rounds. They can hear the thunder of artillery in the background, and they can feel when that artillery lands, and they see the evidence that there are Russian soldiers because they see the bodies of their soldiers who died to the artillery fire. They see the evidence of Russian soldiers when they see drones flying over the sky. And drones... Let's not forget drones. Russia's producing drones now at rates uh, surpassing the Europeans in the United States. And, uh, of course, all, there's all this cope going on about how, oh, they're, they're importing drones from North Korea and, and Iran, and, and, and that they wouldn't win without it. Well, okay, let's just, and let's just unpack that for a second. So what you're saying is that all of NATO lost to Iranian and North Korean drones. Yeah. Like when, when we really unpack some of the propaganda we're given, it really paints a goofy picture, doesn't it? But they're producing drones now. They're accepting the help that they get. Like, don't even, they're accepting the help. <laughs> they're not going to say no. Like, they, 
they're going to take it. If the Iranians want to give them drones, they're going to take it. If the North Koreans want to give them drones, they're going to take it. But let's not pretend that the Russians don't have their own production. They're producing shells at rates we can't even fathom. They're producing drones at rates that are outstripping us. So they're producing tanks faster than all of NATO combined. They're producing armored vehicles faster than all of NATO combined. And they're not losing vehicles at these astonishing rates that the Ukrainians have managed to lose all these pieces of equipment. Well, you remember when the counteroffensive began and they just lost hundreds of armored vehicles. They lost at least 300 tanks, at least, and, and thousands of men. Russia isn't taking those kinds of losses at the same time that they're outproducing the country that is Ukraine. Industry is how Russia has won this war. Industry and really good strategy. But that strategy was predicated on Russian industry, being able to keep up with what they wanted. And now we look at, we can see on the battlefield the results of Russian industry and what that means in an industrial war. You still need industry to fight an industrial war. Look at Israel. They can't produce enough Iron Dome missiles to defend their own skies. Hamas can get as many of those little Scud uh, ballistic missile rockets that they want. I don't know if they're I don't know if they're actually Scud. I just called them Scud, but they they, they can get as many of these ballistic rockets as they want. Israel can't keep up with that. They don't have the industry to keep up with that. We don't have the industry to resupply them with enough to keep up with Hezbollah. Iran has the industry to fire as many rockets as they want. It, Russia and China have the industry to produce hypersonic missiles. We don't. We're, and from what I've heard, it's uh, partially a materials science issue that we don't have the industry uh, to do to get the materials, which is a really big problem because that suggests an entire layer of complexity that you we just don't have. Which, if we're to believe that the North Koreans have a hypersonic missile and we don't, and, um wow but these are the things that we're looking at industry 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 like let's not forget that russia shrugged off a sanctions war a a, a full-scale sanctions attack on the russian economy that plunged the ruble down for like a week and then the ruble recovered and became slightly stronger than it was prior to the sanctions. And then the Russian economy shrunk by like almost a percent in 2022. And now here we are at the end of 2023 and, and Putin's talking about three and a half percent growth for the Russian economy, completely offsetting the loss before and outstripping their growth rate on top of that, the, the, the previous, the pre-sanctions growth rate of the Russian economy has been outstripped now by the, the post-sanctions Russian economy. Like that's the strength of the Russian industry right now. And if I sound like I'm glazing Russia right now, I, I'll be honest, I kind of am, but it's, it's to drive home the point of the power of industry. This is, these are things that wouldn't be possible without industry. Like, we, we take for granted industrialization, but we can see the results of having a strong manufacturing sector. This is why it's so important to have. 
This is why people used to kill for manufacturing back in the day. And then this is what made in the Industrial Revolution so potent because it made economies so much stronger. Like, let's, like, thinking back to World War One and World War Two, especially World War Two, when industry was being bombed out, like the German industry was being bombed mercilessly, and yet they were still able to fight the war to the bitter end. They were still producing tanks, still producing fighters, still producing guns and, uh, and, and ammunition right up until the very end, even while they were being flattened by the the u.s and british bombing campaign it's astounding what the level of resilience that a, a good manufacturing sector can give an economy it's insane and you're talking that but with modern technology and we're seeing what that's capable of where china can have an economic collapse in their in their retail well i keep saying retail but in their 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 real estate there we go they they have this collapse in their real estate sector but their industry is growing by 6.6 percent year on year russia can have a, a whole sanctions war thrown at it and their their currency becomes stronger their economy grows faster than it was prior to the, than it was growing prior to the sanctions like these miracles didn't just come out of nowhere and let's also add to that that russia is has done a mobilization where a uh, a million men are being added to the Russian military on top of an almost million man army to begin with. They had 750,000. So they're taking people out of the private sector and putting them into the military and the economy is still growing at three and a half percent. Still growing at competitive rates to China, dare I say. <laughs> They're able to, and, and while they're being sanctioned, they can build pipeline after pipeline after pipeline around the world. While they're being sanctioned, they can go out and make deals with their, other countries to do uh, trade in local currencies and to purchase Russian oil. And, and while we're talking, when we're talking about sanctions, the Chinese are, are building infrastructure projects in other people's countries because they, they don't have shit to do in their own country even while they have a, a collapse in the real estate sector. Like these miracles of economic activity don't just happen for no reason. Well, well some of them do, but they're not enabled <laughs> in a vacuum. They're enabled by industry. They're enabled by industry. Now, China, we can see the civilian side of that. Their, their civilian industry is what their, uh, their industry is primarily being used for. And they're massive. They're huge. They are the workshop of the world. And with Russia, we can see what industry does for a military in the modern context. And it's every bit as impressive as it was before. In fact, it's even more impressive because Russia's population is uh, a smaller. <laughs> they're, ter they're, they're missing a third of their territory. Like Russia, when it industrialized, both under the Russian Empire and under the Soviet Union, they had they had all of Central Asia and Ukraine and the Baltics and parts of Belarus and Poland. They don't have any of that right now. And yet their industrialization has reached a point where they can afford to do all these things and have any up an arguably almost as resilient economy as they had in the Soviet time when they were cut off from large parts of uh, global trade. 
And now they're a major global economic player because of this industry. It's huge. This is the power of industry. And this is uh, something that gets routinely ignored by all these people who talk about collapse, how Russia and China are going to collapse. Uh, any minute now, they're going to collapse. Uh, j- just look, just look, uh, the, the, he's going to be deposed. Look at that. They're going to fall apart. And, and then it's going to be hunky dory for America. And all these, none of that's going to happen. And it's because of industrialization, it's because of manufacturing. And what we can take away from this for ourselves is that, well, we want manufacturing in our own countries, because why wouldn't we want the benefits that we can see on display for us in both the civilian and military realms? Manufacturing is a motherfucker. But if we're smart, we'll make that motherfucker ours. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. We're being reminded of the power of industry. But no matter how that world changes and no matter how industry changes the world, we will watch those changes together. And we'll have fun doing it. Now I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been watching, well, listening to This Week in Geopolitics. Until we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.